0: Thank you for listening to this message on the Arab-Israeli conflict with Dr. Scott Bridger. Dr. Bridger is the director of the Jenkins Center for a Christian Understanding of Islam and the Bill and Connie Jenkins Assistant Professor of World Religions and Islamic Studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Let's listen now. What I want to do tonight is... uh... Walk through some some of the complexities of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and uh, one of the challenges I would say, and probably um, who watched over the summer when the rockets were going into Israel and saw all that. I'm sure a lot of you guys did. Yeah, we watched as well, and, and uh, uh, oftentimes people think, oh no, the, the 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 situation over there is 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 crazy. It's never been this bad. Well, it has been this bad, and it seems that this is a a recurring pattern. Um, And oftentimes there's an interest when we see events like this past summer with the war that broke out. uh, Interest peaks in knowing more about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I would say even if there's a peak of interest um, because of what's going on in the Middle East right now generally, um, regardless of whether there's a war going on or not, I would say Christians generally need to have an awareness of the situation over there. I think it's just a part of being a good, uh, a disciple of Christ and being able to respond to those that we meet, um, possibly uh, from the Middle East and be be prepared to give a response um, based upon scriptural convictions. So, but one of the challenges, if you've ever uh, gone about thinking or, or investigating the Arab-Israeli con- uh, conflict, is how to assess all the various Versions and narratives, so to speak, that one finds out there about this conflict. Whether it's a Zionistic Jewish perspective, a Christian Zionistic perspective, a, a leftist, a rightist perspective, a Palestinian nationalist perspective, an Islamist, Muslim perspective. There are all these perspectives and opinions out there. And so assessing those um, is, is, can be difficult. Um, there are a number of excellent resources that I w- uh, can point you to. Uh, one I would start with is your, your pastor's uh, um, blog post about the conflict that's on his uh, web page. He could provide you more information about that. gives a nice, brief, historical uh, overview of the conflict. And then I'll mention a couple of books towards the end of our time that uh, if you're really serious and want to learn more about the conflict, uh, those would be two good places to start. So in assessing these narratives that we hear and in assessing all the various Factors that go into this conflict, it's important to slowly unwind uh, various strands, okay? Historical, social strands, religious a- aspects of the conflict, political, ethno- ethnic conflict. Uh, it's complex and time-consuming. And obviously, we can't un- take time tonight and unwind all of that. But I would say it is essential for anyone who wants to know and arrive at a fair assessment of what's going on and more importantly arrive at a a theological position that is consistent with uh, a biblical worldview, that is consistent with uh, biblical values, consistent with what we as evangelical Christians should believe and hold to. And so that necessitates an awareness of, number one, what God is doing in the world. God is on mission. Uh, God is on mission and has been on mission. Uh, since the very foundations of the earth, to claim a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. No one is excluded. Uh, People that are having ethnic conflict are not excluded from this, and his work continues even in the midst of ethnic conflict. And so we must be aware uh, of what he is doing and then be able to respond uh, out of that biblical worldview when we uh, find ourselves in the middle of conflict or find ourselves uh, dialoguing and conversing with people maybe who've experienced conflict of this sort. Um, uh, the gospel is comprehensive in its scope and what it uh, uh, discusses and touches upon, and so we we must be comprehensive in, in our approach to things. So my approach tonight, uh, in the brief time that we have together, is going to be uh, personal and theological. I want to talk personally, just so you know where I've come from a little bit, about my background, my family's uh, experiences in the Middle East, and then address some of the theological um, assumptions, common uh, beliefs that people have about this conflict. And uh, then uh, towards the end of our time, we'll we'll, uh, set aside some time for some Q&A together. So um, uh, I'll begin with a brief testimony of my experiences. I was converted at the age of 18 in high school, And really within two years of my conversion, uh, I sensed a call to overseas ministry, specifically to the Middle East. Uh, I sensed that God was calling me to share the gospel intelligibly and clearly with Middle Easterners, Uh, and it was generally Middle Easterners at the beginning of that, and then God narrowed it down specifically to Arabs, uh, Arab Muslims, and Jewish people as well. Um, I... Uh, Immediately began in my college uh, years uh, preparing myself for a life devoted to ministry among Jews, Arabs, learning their languages, cultures, worldviews, how to communicate the gospel uh, to them. So this all happened within two years of my conversion uh, to Christ. And so uh, in college, I started studying modern Hebrew. Um, I was amazed at how God orchestrated events in my life to bring Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs into my pathway so that I could befriend them, so that I could build relationships with them, and so that I could share the gospel with them. And it seemed that he always brought an Israeli and a Palestinian at the same time into, not necessarily at the same time, but generally uh, at the same uh, span of time into my life. So I always had Israeli friends and I always had Palestinian friends. And uh, it was very clear that God's purpose in that was so that I could share the message of life that is found in the gospel, I worked at the International House at the University of Tennessee where I went to uh, school and uh, met many people, um, many Muslim peoples from across uh, the Muslim world, from Turkey, Pakistan, Indonesia, and other places, as well as uh, Israelis and, and others. In 95, 1995, I received a scholarship to go and spend time in the Middle East studying uh, the conflict, and so. I spent a summer studying language, studying the conflict, doing research, interviewing people about it, eventually returned to go to seminary at Southeastern Seminary and uh, knew that God wanted me to be involved in ongoing ministry and outreach to Middle Easterners. And so that culminated in uh, my working at an Arabic church um, for, and that's really where my ministry side uh, took off in terms of preparation to. Uh, to eventually return to the Middle East. I, I lived with my pastor's family, an Egyptian family, for a year. I lived with had a Palestinian roommate during that time as well. Uh, and that was all here in the United States during my time at seminary. Um, and uh, was, of course, a youth worker at the Arabic church there. In the late 90s, I returned for a year, lived in the city of Jericho, studied more Arabic and Palestinian culture. Um, it was during that time... Um, uh, the times that I was overseas that I began to uh, uh, see the, the devastation that the conflict uh, brought uh, to the people that were involved in it. Uh, I didn't mention this, but in 95, when I decided to, to, to return to the States and, and go to seminary, I left my uh, language study program a week early. And when I got back to the States and uh, uh, was preparing to go to seminary, the bus line that I took to study uh, at the Hebrew University, study Hebrew, was bombed. The very bus line at the very time that I would have taken it. And though I wasn't there at the time when that happened, that woke, that, uh, woke me up to the conflict and woke me up to, to what was going on. When I, w- when I lived in Jericho, I had my car stoned during a period of time when uh, Clinton, uh, President Clinton ordered airstrikes on Iraq. Um, there were reactions to me just uh, because I was an American. Um, uh, so I began slowly to be introduced to the conflict. The late 90s were actually a pretty quiet period, if, if you, anybody recalls, uh, of, of peace efforts uh, between Palestinians and Israelis. But um, uh, throughout it all, I realized I need to know these people and need to uh, clearly understand the conflict uh, so that I can share in the midst of this uh, pain and suffering that everybody is experiencing, share the gospel. Eventually, met my wife in Jerusalem. Uh, she's American, but we met in Jerusalem and uh, came back to the states and got married, and then returned to the Middle East. She had she had been living in Jordan for two years when we met, and we returned to uh, live in Jerusalem in early 2001. And this was at the height of the Second Intifada. And it was a very tumultuous time. Uh, uh, frequently we uh, would see or be near uh, cafes when they would be bombed. And then we were studying Arabic and Palestinian areas and uh, we would uh, witness the bombing of Palestinian cities. Um, tanks rolling in, curfews being imposed upon Palestinian cities, demonstrations. Um, 9-11, we experienced 9-11 while living in Jerusalem and in a palestinian area and uh were invited to celebrate the destruction of the falling of the twin towers uh with our palestinian neighbors um and of course were horrified by that and experienced deep deep uh, uh anger at the reaction of uh, of the very people that god had called us to share the gospel uh with and so Um, These are some of the experiences that we had over the years there. It just uh, drove us back to the fact that these are people on both sides of this conflict who are broken, who are sinful, and who are in need of redemption. Um, Eventually, we had to move to Jordan where we uh, lived for almost a year, but we sensed God calling us after about a year in Jordan to go back to uh, Palestine, the West Bank, and and live there and head up efforts to do humanitarian aid work among Palestinians. And so we did that for a period of time, and then the Iraq War broke out, and we had to move to Egypt for a year. I I tell you all that just to give you a a glimpse of some of the things over a 12-year period that we experienced. In late 2004, uh, excuse me, late 2003, we moved back to Israel and spent uh, the last about eight years living in Haifa, up in the northern part of Israel, living on Mount Carmel until we returned in 2011. My third son is mildly autistic, and so we had to return to the States to get him the care that he needs and could not return to the Middle East. They just don't have uh, the care that he needs. And so while living in Haifa, we experienced uh, the the Hezbollah rocket attacks. Um, All that... Uh, you might think, wow, boy, they just went through wars and had bad times there. There were lots of happy times that we experienced over there. I just want to highlight some of the, the the tough times just to let you know that this is not just a conflict that's over there. We experienced it personally, and I think that gives us, as, as Christians, a unique perspective on this. And um, as I mentioned, some of our happy times, we met, I met my wife there. Uh, three of our children were born in Haifa while we were living there. Uh, we also had, one of the highlights was uh, the experience of worshiping with a group of Messianic Jews that um, in a Messianic congregation that brought Arabs and Jews together. And we saw firsthand how faith in Messiah Jesus can break down the walls of hatred between Jews and Arabs. And there are many congregations like that in Israel today. And uh, they need our prayers, they need our support. We were involved in that. And praise God for it. Um, so um, we want to get into to the lecture and talk more about the conflict and some of the uh, some of the history briefly, and then move uh, into some theological a discussion of some theological assumptions that we have when we think about this. That I think generally Christians have, and address those. Before I do that, briefly, I want to lay my cards on the table and say I am pro-Israeli and pro. Palestinian. I think that's the position that Christians need to take. I would be for, if you're aware of what's going on over there, for a two state peaceful settlement uh, to the uh, current conflict, uh, for an independent Palestinian state that is democratic in nature, um, one that enables Palestinians to determine their own future, and uh, a secure Israel that is at peace with its Arab neighbors. Now, I'm not a, naive at all in assuming that we can achieve, that they can achieve this outcome, uh, or that it's a simple process in achieving that outcome. I'm fully aware of what uh, is involved on both sides. Um, And I'm also aware of elements within the Palestinians and on the Israeli side of things that are uh, intent at undermining any effort at arriving at a peaceful settlement. However, I would argue that a Christian who truly loves Israel or a Christian who truly loves the Palestinians and Palestine uh, should desire to see a peaceful resolution to the current conflict, and I, I would I would argue that that really is a two-state solution. Um, both peoples are lost and without Messiah, and both people need, peoples need our prayers and need our guidance as they move towards uh, need our um, I would say voice to be involved as they move towards. Uh, So let's uh, talk briefly, uh, real brief, hopefully you can see that from kind of far back. Um, This is a modern, uh, brief, modern uh, overview, overview of modern events, we should say. Um, The Ottoman Empire controlled this area around the Mediterranean Sea from 1516 to 1917. Uh, The Ottomans, if you recall, world history sided with the Germans in World War I. They lost. The European powers, this is a brief overview obviously, came in and divided this empire into nation states, okay, and the formation of these nation states um, is really what we think of when we look at a map of the modern Middle East today, we see Egypt, we see Jordan, we see Iraq, we see Lebanon, uh, we see all these different nation states, and really that stems from the period just right after um, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, and it, is also the result of Western intervention into this region, and it's important to keep that in mind. Now, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Jewish groups, particularly in, in Russia and the, beyond the, what was called the Pale of Settlement, Eastern Europe, uh, and even to certain extent in Western Europe, um, were experiencing persecution and began uh, there began to be talk uh, in Zionist circles uh, of a homeland for... Uh, the resettlement or the reconstitution of a Jewish state. Now, uh, the Zionist movement in its very foundations was not a religious movement. It was a secular movement. Most of those at the first Zionist Congress and and, and, uh, most of those involved in the whole Zionist movement at the beginning were secularists and were looking for secular resolutions to the persecution of the Jewish people. Well... At their urging, many Jewish groups began to immigrate to Palestine uh, in this late 1800s and early 1900s. This led to conflict inevitably with the uh, indigenous Arab populations. It's a myth that this was empty land and that there was nobody living there. There had always been uh, Arab and really Jewish populations throughout the land um, uh, throughout uh, the centuries. And so uh, it's a myth that this was a land uh, without a people. And, uh, um, and so their tensions arose, their revolts uh, throughout the, the 20s and 30s. This led to the British seeking um, assistance from other world powers, uh, seeking um, uh, 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 proposals for compromise, working with Arab leaders. There were partition plans of various sorts, uh, too, by the League of Nations, for instance. Uh, all this culminated – nobody could come to an agreement – the early partition plans, the many Jewish groups accepted. The Arabs rejected. Um, there's, there's blame, really, to go around for everybody in this. Um, all this culminates in 48 with the uh, independence of Israel. Israel uh, declares their independence and uh, declares that they are a state, um, which results in, really, the fleeing, uh, fleeing and forced uh, expulsion of many Arabs from their homes. Some fled. Uh, by their own choice. Others were forced, and Israelis will tell you this this is, was the case. Some were forced out. Uh, many fled on their own uh, when Israel was formed. Uh, nonetheless, there actually remained about 150,000 Arabs in what is now known as Israel. They became Israeli citizens. There are about 1.5 million Israeli Arab citizens, Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel uh, even today. There were other skirmishes in the 1950s, uh, but... Major skirmishes, major wars we can point to. 67 war, um, when uh, Egypt uh, and Israel in particular um, fought, Jordan was involved, Syria was involved. This is when the 67 war, Israel took what is known as the West Bank and Gaza. They took the West Bank from Jordan, they took Gaza from the Egyptians, and they took the Golan Heights up in the north from uh, the Syrians. And so, um, Uh, Israel captures really the heartland of what is known as Eretz Israel or the land of Israel, meaning the West Bank with big cities like biblical Shechem or Nablus. The Arabs call it Nablus. Uh, Israelis call it Shechem Shechem in the Bible. Um, Jericho, uh, East Jerusalem, the the, uh, wall, the Temple Mount, parts of Jerusalem, all the way down to Hebron, Hebron. Uh, was uh, recovered by them, or they would call recovered, taken by them. All that occurs in in 1967. In 73, there's another war, Uh, more wars, Lebanon War I and 82. Uh, The Intifada, the Palestinian uprising, or desire to shake off the Israeli occupation, really begins in earnest in 87. Up to that time, many Palestinians um, had benefited economically from Israel's uh, control of their areas though they did not have political independence they, they benefited economically well eventually they wanted uh, to exert political independence and Israel uh, uh, tried to quell those revolts with violence and so that uh, period is called the the Intifada one the a second Intifada breaks out in late 2000. Uh, And then early 2001, when we, my wife and I, were living there, and uh, we had the Lebanon War in 2006, another war in Gaza in 2008, complete Israeli withdrawal at that time from Gaza. Gaza, under the leadership of uh, Ariel Sharon and others, made a very bold uh, uh, decision, much like their decision to return the Sinai after they had captured that in previous wars. Uh, They decided to... Completely pull out, remove the settlements, Jewish settlements from Gaza in 2008. That spilled into 2009, of course. Then 2014, we have the most recent war. So um, I began by talking about how there are recurring uh, 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 conflict. This is a conflict that every three, four, five years, you see these outbreaks of violence. And so it is in need of resolution and, uh, and I think that we as Christians need to support the resol- uh, resolution of this conflict. One of the things that I want to get across to you uh, tonight in our, in our time is that it's very complex. The conflict is complex. Part of that complexity stems from the complexity of Israel itself. If we're just looking at Israel, not thinking about the West Bank or, or, or Gaza, this is some of the diversity that you have in Israel. There's Jewish diversity Most Israelis are very secular in orientation. They're called chilonim. They're secular. Uh, Many of them are atheists. Many of them dabble in New Age uh, philosophies and and, uh, new religious movements. Some of them dabble in Buddhism and uh, Hinduism. Um, Among the secular Israelis, okay, there are some that are more Zionistic, more nationalistic. Zionism is just Jewish nationalism. It's a version of Jewish nationalism. Um, So there are secular Zionists who would say, Israel is our land, we uh, want to control all of it. Um, And then there are non-Zionist secularists who say, yeah, we're for a secure Israel, but we want peace with the Palestinians. Uh, There are spectrums and variations in between. Then you have religious uh, uh, Jews. Um, You have observant uh, in a general sense. Maybe they'll celebrate a few of the holidays. Uh, maybe they they won't work on on Shabbat on Saturdays. You have Orthodox and variations of Orthodoxy in Judaism, from ultra Orthodox to what are, it's called modern Orthodox. You have traditionalists who are for uh, excluding uh, themselves, uh, living in small exclusive areas and and keeping everybody else out, like you have in Mea Shearim and parts of Jerusalem and other areas, um, and even among the the religious, you have Zionists who are religious Jews and you have religious Jews who are non-Zionists. Some of the non-religious Jews, excuse me, some of the religious Jews who are non-Zionists, okay, they're religious, they believe in Judaism, but they're non-Zionists. They go so far as to support the destruction of the modern political state of Israel. They want to see Israel destroyed because they see it as a secular state, a godless state that is anathema to God, God's God's plan for the Jews, in their estimation, is diaspora, to, to live under the rule, uh, the the leadership of Gentile peoples until Messiah comes for the first time in their view, and then Messiah Himself will establish and reconstitute uh, a state for the Jewish people. And so you have religious Jews who are anti-Israel, essentially. Now that's just Jewish diversity. This uh, then you have Arab diversity. You have Muslim Arabs who are secularists, okay? Uh, Everybody knows what a secularist is. You have Muslims who, of course, Arab Muslims who are religious. Uh, Then you have Bedouin, the Bedouin in in southern Israel uh, in particular, and even some in the Galilee, um, about 200,000 or so Bedouin, who, many of whom serve in the Israeli army. They're loyal to the state of Israel. Um, And so they fight on behalf of Israel against other Arabs, okay? Then you have, uh, among the Arabs, you have Christian Arabs. Uh, Arab Christianity g- uh, dates back to the New Testament itself. Um, Acts 2, uh, the day of Pentecost. Look at the language there uh, listed and you'll see Arabic as one of the languages spoken on the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of Arab Christianity and has existed in Israel-Palestine for 2,000 years. Many of the Christians that are in Iraq are being persecuted are Assyrian Christians. But their their history is extremely long. So uh, there are uh, Christian Arabs. Arab is not Muslim. Not all Muslims are Arabs and not all Arabs are Muslims. And that's a very important distinction to make. You have secular Christians. Yeah, secular. So um, generally, uh, secular could be an atheist. Um, Generally, they're going to want to. They'll have a view that says, "Let's keep religion out of politics." That's that's a, a good baseline def, definition. Um, and so, and they'll they'll have there'll be different ideologies that m- they might hold to. But generally, they will say, "Religion and politics. Let's keep them separate." Um, so there are Christian Arabs who are that way. Um, they are uh, a variety of denominational affiliations, Orthodox, meaning Greek Orthodox, Catholic, Latin, Catholic, there are variations of Catholic, Protestants, uh, Copts uh, from the Coptic Church, which has its roots in Egypt, and then even other rites. And, of course, there are evangelicals as well. Then there are other uh, groups of of Arabs called the Druze. They are a a spinoff of Shiite Islam. They live in Israel, about 150. 50 to 200,000 of them, they are loyal, many of them, to the state of Israel and are many of them are Zionists. They're Arab Druze who are Zionists who support the state of Israel and um, uh, fight against other Arabs uh, who would uh, attack Israel. But some Druze are religious and others aren't. And then there are even other minority groups among the, the Arabs like the Alawites um, and the Ahmadiyya uh, and um, groups that I won't go into, but they're... This is just to give you a picture of the diversity that is Israel. It's not Jew, Arab, good guys, bad guys. Okay, that needs to go away. It's extremely diverse. It's extremely complex, uh, and so this should be always be kept in mind when talking about this conflict: the diversity, religious, ethnic, linguistic, and then ideological diversity that you find among the various groups. Uh, living in the land today. Let's move on to uh, some common theological assumptions. And this is kind of the nitty-gritty of what we want to talk about tonight. Some believe, the first one, um, that Genesis uh, 12, 1 through 3, refers to the modern country of Israel and or the Jewish people. What's Genesis 1 through 12 uh, say? Well, that is where you have the call of Abraham. If you want to look at it, you can. Um, I'll, I'll put a lot of verses up there. We'll look at a few of them tonight. We won't have time to look at all of them, but, but this one's extremely important. Uh, it says, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and to your kindred and, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse." And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are some Christians who read these verses and will say things like uh, uh, that um, God told Abraham that all anti-Semites, and this is a quote, um, are under his curse. In other words... This verse says that anybody who is an anti-Semite is uh, cursed. And Jesus declared, this is a continuation of this quote, that they will come, those who believe this or are anti-Semitic, will come under the judgment of God and the judgment of the nations. Now, I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm not uh, saying that uh, somebody can support anti-Semitism. Obviously, they can't from a biblical stance. But is that what this verse is talking about? That's, I think, the question we need to pose. And is this, in any way, a reference, this verse, does it have anything to do with the modern political state of Israel? I would challenge all of you um, who are interested in doing this to look at every reference to Israel in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and find out and investigate if any of the verses that say Israel or more veiled references uh, to Israel Abraham and his descendants, uh, as we have in this verse, Genesis 12, do any of them refer to the modern political state of Israel? And I think any fair-minded person will have to say no. None of them are referring to the modern political state of Israel. Um, so we need to get that out of our minds, that every time we read Israel or hear about Abraham's descendants, that somehow there's a link, a direct link, between what we're reading in the Scriptures ...and the modern political state. Keep all that diversity in mind that I just talked about. Right? Remember all that diversity? That's all inside of Israel. And so, uh, 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 what is that referring to? If somebody wants to argue that um, these verses um, are the basis of um, blessing, receiving blessing... ...or being cursed, and that's tied somehow to our treatment of the, the nation of Israel... Uh, I find that very, very difficult to substantiate from these verses. The fact is that these verses that we have here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, are the culmination, really, of uh, uh, a particular point in redemptive history. Um, A very important point in the flow of redemptive history that we have from Genesis, really leading all the way to Revelation. Revelation. Genesis twelve three uh, is uh, refers back to, and you can investigate this. It's an echoing of what God was doing in uh, the beginning after the fall. So in the beginning, God of course creates everything. He he declares it good. He uh, tells humanity to that they are blessed, that they are to go fill the earth, multiply. We of course, this is a nutshell. We in a nutshell, we rebel. We listen. And choose to listen to the voice of Satan. Uh, we think that we know better and can decide better uh, God's, uh, our plan for our lives than God's. And so we revolt. And this results, of course, in the destruction of the created order. Sin is introduced in the created order. Reaps havoc on everything. But in the midst of this, God pronounces um, the gospel in a nutshell, so to speak. He announces in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush uh, Satan's head. And that this would spell, in essence, the end of sin and death that was introduced in the created order as a result of our humanity, our rebellion against God. Us and Adam and Eve, our our ancestors. Um, So God announces this good news to them. After, fast forwarding a little bit, after the events of the flood... Um, God tells us once again to fill the earth, so, uh, to multiply. We rebel once again by staying uh, in one place, building an idolatrous uh, tower to God, thinking that we uh, are something and have a name of, for ourselves, and can make a name for ourselves, and God once again uh, punishes us. In At this point, God uh, scatters us, can, uh, confuses our language, and sets in motion his plan to undo all that has just occurred. And so, uh, really, you see God in Genesis 1 through 11 dealing with humanity at a universal level. Um, Of course, you have Adam and Eve, but then God is dealing with humanity at this universal level. Then it kind of focuses in on one particular individual, particular particular individual, that's Abraham or Abram and his and his descendants, and God begins to unfold this plan of redemption through Abraham and his seed. Now, this idea of seed is introduced, of course, in Genesis 3-5, as we talked about. Um, Abraham, in Genesis 12, is identified as the one who's chosen on behalf of all. All were condemned, all were punished, all were universally um, res- under the judgment of God. And in the midst of that judgment, God chooses one, to, not to be the locus of blessing, not to be the focus of blessing, but to be a conduit of blessing to all families of the earth. That's what it says in Genesis 12.3. Not to be the locus of blessing, not to be the focus of blessing, although he participated in the blessings, but to be the conduit through which blessing would come. This, this is the plan. These, this uh, promise of blessing is mentioned in 12.3 that we read. 18.18, it's mentioned five times. 22.18, so you can look them up later. I'll just put them up here. 26.4 and 28.14. What's interesting is you look at these, there's explicit mention in these three. And this is the promise, again, this promise to, that Abraham, his descendants would, through, his, through Abraham, through his descendants, would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. These three, there's an explicit mention of Abraham's seed, the same seed, singular, that is mentioned way back, of course, in Genesis 3.15. And so this is, you cannot understand these verses or rip them out of the context of this, plan of redemption that God is unfolding from Genesis that stretches all the way to our day and beyond to the events that will unfold uh, in Revelation. So, if we fast forward a little bit and get to Galatians 3, Paul says explicitly that it is not seed plural, but seed singular, i.e. Jesus that is the focus and locus of God's blessings. Those who are in Jesus, those who are in Christ by faith um, those are the ones that are blessed. Faith in Christ is how one appropriates the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the here and now. That's the bottom line of what we need to arrive at when it comes to this particular verse and how it relates to this conflict. Again, I'll repeat it. Faith in Christ is how one appropriates the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the here and now. Read Galatians 3, 9-12, through 12, verse 14 and 16. And I would say faith has always been uh, the uh, requirement for enjoying the promises and blessings of God's covenants. God gives promises, but enjoyment of those promises, participation in those blessings, has always been uh, rooted in faith, based upon faith. Israel's history demonstrates this. Faithfulness results in blessing. A lack of faithfulness results in judgment. So it's problematic those who would interpret these verses as somehow referring to um, our treatment of Israel, modern political Israel that is, it's problematic to interpret, interpret any of the Old Testament covenants or what's going on there uh, with Israel and, and 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 those events apart from what God has accomplished in Christ in the new covenant. We should never view, uh, hear me on this, never view the state of Israel as the locus of blessings and cursings and that these somehow are conveyed, conveyed to other nations based upon our treatment of that one nation. I think that's a very dangerous idea. Um, this is a position reserved for Christ. How we treat Christ. How we respond to Christ. Are we going to accept Him? We are blessed. If we do not, we are cursed. Christ is the seed. Christ is the one that we bless and are blessed. And if we cursed, curse, we are cursed. So exalting Israel or the Jewish people in the way that some would advocate, I would say, is actually a curse to the political state of Israel. And it's, a, it's, it's we are implying somehow that they can be or are in right standing with God outside of Christ. That is to curse somebody. If we imply that anybody is in right standing, a nation or an individual even, uh, uh, in right standing somehow uh, outside of what God has done in Christ, I think we are... Uh, actually cursing that person and causing great harm uh, to them. So, a second assumption, and I'll give you time at the end to ask uh, questions about all this, because I'm sure many of you have some questions that you'd like to pose. Some believe that Ishmael and his descendants, the Arabs, are spiritually cursed. Spiritually cursed. Is Ishmael spiritually cursed? Is this an idea that can be supported Uh, from the Scriptures. I would say any serious study of the Bible uh, would demonstrate that there's not any evidence for that in the whole of the Old Testament. Genesis 17.20 Okay, Genesis 17.20 You can look there later when you have time. I think demonstrates, proves that God intends to bless Ishmael. Um, It's true that Ishmael, okay, was not... uh, uh, the seed in whom the gracious uh, God would uh, implement his covenant. He's not that particular seed. Isaac is, is that seed. And then the uh, Isaac, of course, eventually leading to Jesus is that seed. Um, so Ishmael is not that seed. However, uh, Ishmael's obedience to circumcision put him under the spiritual blessings promised to Abraham. And we see that in the account there in Genesis 17. Even though he's excluded from the covenant uh, uh, with Abraham, he and his descendants were to live under God's blessings and enjoy God's blessings. And this is um, seen very clearly in the account with Ishmael. And so uh, there's an assumption, I think, that the election of Isaac, and a scholar, one scholar put it this way, that the election of Isaac to administrate God's kingdom purposes in history, okay, what God was doing with the line of Isaac, alienates Ishmael from God's spiritual and material care, and that's that's false. Um, this is a common misconception that many Christians have today, and I think um, we implicitly, maybe even explicitly, extend that to Arabs, and then impose that or project this on the conflict that is going on between Jews and Jews. And Arabs today. Let me state clearly, and you can do your research, this conflict is a modern conflict. It's not the result of some tension between Isaac and Ishmael, or even Jacob and Esau going way back. The scriptures just do not bear that out. We don't see this ongoing fighting and tension uh, throughout biblical history, and even into post-biblical history, uh, it is a modern uh, conflict... Um, And it is the result, I think, uh, in many ways, um, the result of a crisis in interpretation of history and theology. And I would say that we as Christians should not perpetuate this crisis by an improper interpretation and application of Scripture uh, in this regard. So we should think biblically, think theologically, and think through uh, our assumptions, whether implicit or explicit, on points like this a third uh, assumption is that 1948 was a fulfillment of prophecy um, many will say that we can interpret events in Israel's present-day affairs as somehow being connected to future prophetic events beginning with 1948 um, Now we don't have time to unpack this argument it's a pretty uh, pretty lengthy and detailed argument but i would just challenge those who want to uh, who might hold to this view and ask them whether 1948 and and uh, the events surrounding the establishment of the modern political state of israel meet the same standards in terms of fulfillment of prophecy as the birth of messiah or his triumphal entry into jerusalem his crucifixion his resurrection all of which we have clear prophetic teaching about and fulfillment of In the scriptures, is 1948, does it meet the same standard as those? And I think you'll find that it doesn't and should not be considered a fulfillment of prophecy. Was God sovereign overall, the returning of Jews to land? Definitely. Don't don't think that uh, I do not believe in the sovereignty of God in this whole uh, conflict. I do, Um, but, and did the Jews need a homeland? I would argue even yes on that point. But did this necessitate a conflict between Arab, Palestinian Arabs who, and, and did it necessitate them losing their homeland? I don't think that it had to. And I think in the end this was a, a great misfortune that can be rectified even today uh, by the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. Um, those are three common theological assumptions. This fourth one we want to uh, go just a little bit more into uh, before we have some Q&A here. Some believe that Israel has a divine right to the land. So let's let's unpack that one just a little bit here. Can anybody claim a divine right to the land today? So if we believe that the promise of land to Abraham's physical descendants is active and valid today, okay, can they act upon that? Can can uh, the Jewish people um, act upon this uh, promise? Um. This presumes two things at least. Um, One, it presumes that we can know who Abraham's physical descendants are. Can we know exactly who his physical descendants are? And then say, okay, those guys with this particular DNA pattern then can lay claim to uh, these promises and act upon them today. Well, what is that DNA pattern? What does it look like? If anybody's familiar with Judaism, you will know that It is an ongoing and and will continue to be an ongoing debate of who is a Jew. Jews themselves can't decide who a Jew is. Is it based upon uh, ethnic heritage, the mother's side, um, or the grandparent's side? Can somebody be a Jew? Biblically, it's the father's side, by the way, though modern Judaism says it's the mother's side. So uh, there's all kinds of uh, discussion and argument and back and forth. Some will say it's a culture um, you just, you know, you celebrate the holidays, and and that's what it means to be Jewish. Some will say, well, it's being a practicing Jew doing what Judaism says. Um, so there are all kinds of disagreements, even among Jews themselves. And so if we're going to say that there's a promise of land that can be acted upon today, okay, in the here and now. I'm not talking about future eschatology. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about today. Then... And then it's tied to ethnicity. How do we go about defining that and then legitimate uh, one person's claim versus another person's uh, claim? Another uh, presumption is that um, the land promise remains valid today. Um, just that some will say, yes, that's, uh, Israel can claim, make a divine right, uh, make a divine uh, a claim to the land based upon a divine right. And this presumes that that divine right is valid today. Well, if we go that uh, path, then we're going to have to assume that they are in right relationship with God and therefore can act upon his covenant promises, right? Um, This is problematic because enjoyment of God's promises and blessings, okay, has always been based upon covenant faithfulness. Go back to Deuteronomy 28 through 30 if you want to... uh, Bear out what I'm read and, and find out if what I'm saying is accurate on this. Deuteronomy 28 through 30 um, will demonstrate to, to us that enjoyment of God's promises, enjoyment of any of the blessings, any of the covenant promises is based upon being rightly related to God. It, uh, enjoying those promises means you have to be uh, in covenant with God. And when you aren't in covenant with God, God punishes you. Nothing has changed. When we, Jesus says, abide in me, those who abide in me will bear much fruit. If you do not abide in me, you will not bear much fruit. It's the same principle. Um, Those who remain in covenant will be blessed. Now, can we then say that those who are outside of Christ are in covenant with God? That's very problematic to say that there is, there are a group of people who are outside of Christ... And yet can act upon today promises that God gave when they are not in covenant with him. Being in covenant with him today means being in Christ. The last time I read my uh, New Testament. And so all those outside of Christ are not rightly related to God. Um, So the land promise, what about this promise? What do we do with this promise? Who can make a claim to it, if anybody? Um, does the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant extend to ethnic Jews collectively? We've talked about some of this and, and uh, hit on it some already. Um, again, there's, this is problematic because we have to get into definitions of who's a Jew. But if somebody wants to say, yeah, we can identify them, we do know who they are, then does that mean if we're going to say, yes, we know who they are and then they can make a, a, a claim uh, to the land based upon this divine promise, does that mean then that they can claim Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Egypt as theirs by divine right? How does this work? Are we supposed to then um, support their taking of the land if it's theirs by divine right? If we oppose them, then we would be opposing, in essence, God's will uh, God's will for them to have this land. So, we we would not even be able to raise our voices and say that this is an unjust act. So, I think that is fraught with all kinds of promises. Um, maybe it's the state of Israel collectively. So if it's, if, it's not, if it's just ethnic Jews, I think there are all kinds of problems defining who's a Jew, um, all kinds of problems, uh, um, and how that practically works out. Well, maybe it's the state of Israel, just the state of Israel. Well, how does that apply to the 25% of Israeli citizens who aren't even Jewish? What about Arab Christians and Arab Muslims, i.e. Palestinians, some of whom claim that they are actually ethnically Jewish and converted to Christianity or Jude or uh, Islam several generations ago. So they're ethnically Jewish even though they're Palestinian Arab. How does that uh, work out? Can they lay, make a, a divine claim? Um, they're Israeli citizens? Uh, that seems problematic as well. Um, what about Messianic Jews? Some will say, well, Messianic Jews, they're in covenant with God through Christ and they're ethnically uh, Jewish Um I think that you could maybe make the best case for that, but still the idea of uh, saying that there's a particular group on, on the face of the planet that today okay, can uh, act upon promises um, uh, to them by divine right and, and, and do so in a way that deprives others their rights, I think is problematic from a, a biblical, ethical uh, standpoint. Um, what about the uh, options? How are we going to regard the land promise today? One, one way is saying that it was fulfilled historically and has no ongoing validity. Um, those who would uh, hold to this position would say that uh, it was fulfilled during possibly the time of Joshua and the, the taking of the land or... Maybe during the time of David and Solomon in the United Kingdom period, Uh, there are various ideas out there. So I think that's problematic actually as well because there does seem to be some ongoing validity to this promises because the the language that's used to describe the land promises is that this is an eternal inheritance. And I'm sure you've encountered that in in your Bible. Um, It's an uh, eternal inheritance. So what are we going to do with that? Some will say, well, it was fulfilled by Israel, the Jewish nation, in 1948 and when God reconstituted them as a nation. Um, we've talked about that and touched on that some already. Um, I don't think we can uh, view 48 as a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, and then we have also the problem of those being outside of Messiah enjoying the blessings of the covenants. Again, that's a problem. Um, and this ultimately, if somebody goes this uh, path, sets up a dualism that, if not checked, can slip into a dual covenant kind of approach where Jews are saved by keeping the law and obeying God's promises and enjoying those promises, and Gentiles are saved by virtue of their faith in Christ. I don't think that Paul or anybody else in the New Testament would agree with that perspective, and so that is, that is not a valid Uh, option. The third one is the one that I will hold is that the land promises are there, but they will be fulfilled in the end times when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. And at that time, we will inherit the earth, Jesus says. All of us will reign with Christ. Um, uh, Many, many things point to that, that those who are in Christ will reign with him. We will inherit the earth. We will have resurrected bodies. And we will reign with him. And people want to make an argument that Jews will have a special place in that time. And the land promises to the descendants of Abraham will be fulfilled at that time. I have no problem with that. Um, I think all of what uh, uh, the promises about land, um, what is said, will ultimately be fulfilled in the renewing of the earth uh, when Christ uh, returns. What can we do? One, I think we need to encourage Israel because they hold most of the cards in the Middle East conflict. Uh, the Palestinians don't have a lot of power. Um, they aren't holding cards in terms of, of, of military advantages. So, But I would encourage, I encourage, uh, uh, and I think we, even in our uh, political leaders and others, should encourage Israel to follow biblical commands regarding the treatment of people, and then precedents that we find... In the scriptures, Abraham was given the promise of land, told it would be his eternal inheritance. And yet, when it came time to bury his wife, Sarah, what did he do? He went down to Hebron. This is part of the land that God promised is his. And did he just say, hey, this is mine. Get out of here. No, he bought a piece of land to bury his wife, even though it was his by eternal inheritance. He treated the local inhabitants with respect and honor. And I think that's the precedent uh, that should inform our position on this conflict. David, First Chronicles twenty-one. Look there, uh, when it came time to God was leading him to, to um, not him but eventually Solomon build the temple, but nonetheless secure a place for the temple on Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. He goes to Ornan, this uh, Canaanite Jebusite, I guess he was, and uh, uh, says. I, I want this piece of land. Ornan uh, wants to give it to him. And he says, no, let me purchase it. Let me purchase this piece of land. Even though this is a Jebusite, he's he's a descendant of Abraham, David that is. And he again treats the local inhabitants with respect. Joshua and the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua 5. So that's where this is possibly an epiphany of Christ himself. Anyway, he's entering into the land to conquer it, Right? And he goes, uh, He sees this angel with this sword, Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15, I believe. And he asks, uh, are you for us or for them? And the, the, the commander of the, the army of the Lord says, neither. He says, no. He says, I'm here to make sure that God's plan goes forward. Uh, I think that's another um, example for us. And then Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, the Mount of, the, his Sermon on the Mount Mount of Beatitudes there talks about uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, all the promises that he gives there. I think all those should inform our approach uh, to this conflict and um, uh, help us to arrive at a position that today, in the here and now, okay, I don't think that anybody can make a valid claim to a piece of land based upon a divine promise. Eschatologically, that will be fulfilled in God's good time when Christ returns. So that, that is the position that I advocate, and I think it uh, does best uh, uh, just does justice to the weight of biblical teaching on this topic. Um, other things here, I think we should view the ongoing conversion of Jews as explicit evidence that God is keeping His covenantal promises with Israel. I think we've seen this throughout history; it continues today. In, uh, in Israel, there are Jewish people who make professions of faith every day. There are, co- ma- there are Messianic congregations in every major city in Israel. And so God is faithful. He, has, um, he is working and is at work uh, in that country among, among Jewish people. We should see, third, we should see the modern state of Israel as a part of a larger opportunity to become aware and more familiar with the Jewishness of our own Christian faith, our own heritage. Absolutely. Our faith, okay, is biblical Judaism, you could call it. Um, the, the faithfulness um, to who God is and what God is doing throughout history from Genesis to Revelation is fulfilled in New Testament Christianity. Um, modern Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, is a post-New Testament faith. And this is not a main topic of our conversation tonight, though I've taught Judaism You look at the history of Judaism. People sometimes think that Judaism, rabbinic Judaism or modern Judaism today is somehow related to Old Testament Judaism. It just simply isn't. It became a very different religion after the destruction of the temple and then the codification of Jewish Jewish texts like the Talmud, like the Mishnah and and other works. And it is a post-New Testament faith. Biblical faith is New Testament uh, faith. That's New Testament Judaism, so to speak. That is the faith that unites Jew, unites Gentile in Christ, in one, and breaks down all the barriers. That is legitimate faith in God's God's eyes. Um, Number four, we we should emphasize that Jewish believers will inherit the promises when Christ returns along with believers from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. We will all who are in Christ. uh, Ephesians talks about all of us are partakers in the promises. All of us are partakers and are heirs of the promises to Abraham. Messianic Jews will participate in that, of course, because they believe in Jesus. We, who may not be from a Jewish background, will as well. Everybody does. We are all sons of Abraham by virtue of our faith in Messiah. And so we will all inherit uh, those uh, promises and inherit uh, what God has given us in Christ. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, We need to realize that this includes Arabs as well as Jews. People will pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and they're thinking about praying for the peace of Israel and Jewish people. Well, uh, last time I checked, Jerusalem is inhabited by, oh, half a million uh, Arabs as well. So (laughs) remember them when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should advocate and support a two-state solution as the best solution to the current conflict. As difficult as it is to achieve, I think that's the best solution um, I think uh, the majority of Israelis believe that as well, uh, though they argue back and forth over the how of, of implementing this. And many Palestinians as well uh, agree. It's, it's, again, the how of achieving it, where the details, um, uh, where people get mixed up on the details or disagree over the details. Seventh, finally, we should never sacrifice our obligation to testify to both Jew and Arab about the power of reconciliation, reconciliation. Excuse me, that resides in the gospel of Messiah Jesus. I've seen it. People come to faith in Messiah in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David that was promised in Genesis, and and uh, is given uh, uh, by virtue of people's faith in Christ. There is power in that gospel message. Jews are re- reconciled to Arabs, Arabs are reconciled to Jews. They don't agree immediately on every political issue or over the land and things like that. But nonetheless, they have peace in Messiah. There are congregations like that in Israel. That's a model uh, that we as believers should encourage. Two sources, resources, two books that I would encourage you to uh, check out on this. One I use in a class of mine at Southern Seminary, Palestine and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, it's a history with documents, very dense, very thick. But if you're really serious and want to know more about uh, the conflict, this will open your eyes to the fact that there is none righteous, no, not one, in this conflict. Um, You will see firsthand uh, that uh, in the way, the political maneuvering, the terrorism on the Jewish side and the terrorism on the Arab side. There is no, not one uh, who is righteous in this conflict. This book over here on the left by Dr. Tony Maalouf, a Lebanese Christian, Arab, uh, really uh, does an excellent job of challenging this bias that we Western Christians have against Arabs, uh, uh, Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael, and by extension, uh, Arab people who are considered his uh, descendants. And so he looks at the biblical portrayal of Ishmael and traces the development of the peoples that came from Ishmael's line throughout biblical history and then even in a post-biblical history, and so it's an eye-opener, and uh, I would encourage you uh, to look at that. Um, A lot of information uh, that we've covered, and uh, I want to take time now. This is the city of Haifa where three of my kids were born. This is a picture from a university where I did a master's degree at an Israeli university in Arabic and Islamic studies, and that's my favorite city in the world. So uh, anyway, questions and uh, comments? You can just raise your hand and I'll repeat the question. Yes. 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 Yeah, so the introduction of Islam is uh, uh, kind of the source of a lot of the conflict. That, that's new in, in what sense? Like 1,400 years new or? Okay. Um, uh, what, it's interesting. Um, Islamic anti-Semitism, okay? Islamic versions of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel uh, sentiments is relatively new. You do have certain verses in the Quran that I'm aware of that are very, we would interpret them as anti-Jewish at least. Um, And in the Hadith literature, other sources that Muslims turn to. But if you look just at the history of Muslim-Jewish relations, uh, generally speaking, they had better relationships throughout the centuries until this past 100, 150 years than Christians and Jews had. Um, I think history bears that out. Not in every instance, not in every circumstance. Uh, Nonetheless, um, so there wasn't this animosity. Now, that uh, that situation changed when the Ottomans made a decision in the 1830s to give... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, at certain points in history, they did. Uh, particularly in the late 1800s, that that really started. The Ottomans did make a decision under influence from Western powers in the 1830s, okay, to give um, non-Muslim, they're not really citizens, but non-Muslim residents in the Ottoman Empire equal status in eyes of the law. The reason they did that is not based upon Islamic Sharia law. It was definitely because of influence from the West at that time. Um, that, com- that, that resulted in um, Christians kind of being elevated, uh, Jewish groups being elevated. That started a lot of animosity between Muslims and Christians, Muslims and Jews in what we call the modern Middle East. That began in the late, in the 1830s. We saw massacres of Christians in the late 1800s. Nestorian Christians, a lot of those we're hearing about today, Assyrians and others. There was a big massacre of them in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the Armenians as well who were Christians um, from the country of Armenia who lived in parts of Turkey. Um, a lot of that stems from uh, uh, this decision to give these groups equal status. So, so there has been tension, but generally so long as Christians and Jews maintained their kind of minority status and didn't fight for equal rights which was the case for basically 1,200 years in the Middle East, things were relatively peaceful, relatively peaceful. <coughs> Other questions? Yes. Well, um, that's a complex question. All these are complex questions. Um, we have uh, examples in um, Muhammad's biography, what, what what they call Muhammad's biography, of him um, fighting Jews, okay, um, cutting off their heads uh, on the basis that they broke agreements uh, um, with him. Okay, we have some of that. Most of that was not referenced, though. If you look at Muslim works, Muslims writing works about other religions throughout the Middle Ages, um, there isn't a lot of reference of those things as a model that modern, uh, that uh, Muslims are to emulate um, when it comes to their treatment of Jews or Christians. Okay? That's a pretty recent thing. Um, nonetheless, those, those things are there in the sources, and so, so those that are acting upon them have some basis in their sources for doing so. But that's not been the trend throughout most of uh, Islamic history. I'm not trying to defend uh, Islam or, or, or Muslims, but I just want the facts to be the facts. And so that's just not what we saw for most of, of the history. So it's relatively recent. Um, at least the forms of it that we're seeing. There are sporadic outbreaks here and here and there. Throughout all of history, outbreaks of violence against Jews and Christians and others in in these areas. So, uh, but they were relatively isolated again, and they weren't. They didn't take. They didn't have the ideological kind of uh, underpinnings that they do now, where there's this real campaign of anti-Semitism and anti-Christianism, anti-Christian fought uh, in Islam that you, you we are seeing today. Other uh, comments? Yes. Yes. That's true. Technically, Arabs are a Semitic people. Um, uh, anybody who speaks a Semitic language is considered a Semite. So Arabic is a Semitic language. Hebrew, of course. Uh, Aramaic, which in its uh, dialect called Syriac, which is still spoken today in northern Iraq and southern Turkey by those Christians. Those are all Semitic peoples um and so on a just kind of a linguistic kind of a semantic basis we could say well there's some sem- semites it's really anti-judaism that i'm referring to when i say anti-semitism islamic anti-semitism i mean islamic anti-jewish uh, judaism or anti-israel uh, sentiments that's what i'm referring to yeah yes Mm -hmm. Have we financed through Israel and kept Palestine alive? Well, there has been. Uh, The Saudis, Kuwaitis, at various points in history, the Iraqis, the Egyptians... Uh, did finance. We, our greatest ally in the Middle East until the 1960s was which country? Anybody know? Until the 1960s. Our greatest ally in the Middle East was Iran. Yes, that's a fact. Our greatest ally in the Middle East until the 1960s was Iran. And then things started to change, okay? And then, of course, the revolution in the late 70s occurred, and you saw this dramatic shift. So between the 1960s and 70s, there was a dramatic shift. And we felt that our geopolitical interests were better served by aligning with, with Israel. Um, and um, But our geopolitical interests are kind of all over the map. We support the Saudis. We support the Egyptians in cert- certain ways. Um, we have Our support of the Palestinians um, has varied. Uh, George Bush, Bush, the first George Bush, was pretty... Pro peace and advocated reconciliation and worked towards that. Clinton, in the early period, was pretty pro-Israel and anti-Palestinian in the early period. Though eventually, we see the reconciliation and the uh, between Arafat and Rabin and all that that we saw in the Clinton administration, which uh, was kind of going on behind the scenes, and Clinton found out pretty much later on about it. But um, so it's it's varied depends on the administration and the, the period of time. Um, I think we should do more to support democratic elements among the Palestinians. People will say, well, Israel's a democracy. They When you, you're negotiating with them, you have a place to go. When they do bad things, you have an address to go to uh, to criticize them. When the, pa- the Palestinians, it's complete chaos. You don't know who's in control. I would say that is true, but... Um, Palestinians themselves bear the brunt of that responsibility, but part of that is also the responsibility of Israel. There are elements and have been and continue to be elements within Israeli governments and successive uh, Israeli governments that uh, do everything they can to undermine any chance of peace. Why? Because they want to hold on to the land. They don't want peace. They want the land. And they want to build settlements, and they don't want Palestinians to be self-determining, to have a state of their own. And so... That's that's part of the complexities of the conflict. Yes. Where where would you advocate this state be established? Uh, The West Bank and Gaza. The West Bank and Gaza. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you touch on the Balfour Declaration a little bit? Yeah, the Balfour Declaration was a British document um, that, bottom line, called for the establishment of a Jewish national homeland in, uh, well, in, uh, the language that's used is inclusive of every of Palestine, and I think it's inclusive of both. And there are different interpretations of Eastern Bank of the Jordan River, which would be Jordan today, and then the Western Bank of the Jordan River, which is what we call Israel. Um, Chaim Weitzman and and uh, others. There, you know, it's it's uh, in that book that I showed you. Uh, Great discussion of that. You have the actual Balfour Declaration. You have all the parties and how they interpreted various aspects of the Balfour Declaration. Bottom line, it was a pro-Jewish homeland in the Middle East document. Yeah. Yeah. You want to follow up with any of that? But the Brits later on uh, went against that. And (laughs) so... It's not like that was the British stance. The the Brits eventually, after the Balfour Declaration, uh, were at odds with many Jewish groups and started inhibiting Jewish immigration to to Palestine because they were in control at the time. And the reasons for that were based upon, again, their political maneuvering and their relationships with Arabs and them trying to figure out how to maintain their empire and India and their, their interests in the region. Um, but that document was uh, a very important document, definitely. Well, what was the West Bank, what's today the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, what yes. was it like before 1948? Yes. Great, great question. They were a part of, they weren't a state. The Ottoman Empire was the Ottoman Empire. There weren't necessarily boundaries and nation states at that time. And so Palestine was considered a part of greater Syria, generally speaking, so was Jordan. Um, it's only until after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, Western powers come in and they start dividing things uh, that uh, you have these uh, boundaries and then you have these specific references to nation-states or, or areas of territory in the region. Yeah. are the Palestinians, what we call the Palestinians. Yes. used by Arab uh, Of course they are. They have been... They have been pawns. The Palestinians have been pawns uh, by Arab nations and their interests in the region, uh, going all the way back to Nasser in Egypt, um, whether they supported them. I mean, Jordan itself, for a long time, long time, wanted the West Bank to be its territory, didn't want the Palestinians to have a state of their own. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you, you'll find... Um, uh, the Palestinians that are refugees in Lebanon were never given citizenship and to this day don't have citizenship. The only nation in the Arab world that gave Palestinian refugees citizenship was Jordan. Now, the reasons for that are complex. Uh, it's because they wanted them to be able to go back to their homeland, and they were waiting for the Arab nations to liberate Palestine and so that the, the Arabs that came from there could return to their homes. And so, um, But had the Palestinians been a pawn at various times? Absolutely, definitely. And so again, a lot of the blame um uh, can be laid at the feet of the Arabs for for this. Establishing what do you see happening as far as the other Arab nations as well the Arab Uh supporting them in any way, continuing to give them rockets? Well, obviously not. No, I would not be for a militarized Palestinian. Yeah. Could that happen? Of course. Unfortunately, uh, we live in a fallen world. Yes, it could happen. So, any negotiation towards a two-state solution needs to ensure that the state that would be formed would be democratic in nature and would not be militarized to the extent that they would have heavy heavy military capabilities. So th- this has all been stated in the negotiations, going back to Oslo and Madrid and all these these types of things. So that that's those are those are principles that. That both sides have, in principle, uh, agreed upon. Yeah, and I would support that. I would not support a a fundamentalist Islamic state next to Israel, for instance. Um, Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was an import from from outside, primarily by Eastern uh, or or European Jews, Ashkenazim, as they're called. Uh huh. Uh, Uh, Not among everybody. No, definitely not. There are Arab voices, Muslim Arab voices, that call for democracy in forms that are similar to what we enjoy here in the West, in the United States. Uh, all across the Middle East? Is it indigenous, so to speak? Well, democracy begins with the Greek, so I don't know if we can claim it as ours uh, even. So um, the forms of it, you know, you have to get into forms of it. The form of democracy that you have in Israel is a form of democracy, but there is an obvious uh, preferential treatment of those from a particular racial background. We would not consider that, pure democracy here in the United States, would we? Uh, Preference for any ethnic group in our democracy is called racism. Yeah. So, But that's what you have in the Middle East. Yes? Uh, I know it's very complicated, but uh, jihad? Yes, jihad. Yeah, jihad um, is Islamic um, attempt to impose Islamic political power over a non-Muslim people. That's a classical kind of definition, by the use of force, obviously. Now, you'll hear talk in modern conversations or apologists trying to defend Muslims and say, well, there's this greater jihad and lesser jihad. The lesser jihad is the use of violence to uh, defend Islam, only when uh, uh, somebody is attacking Muslims and Muslim people. Um, And then there's this greater jihad, which is the jihad of the self, the struggle against what we call the sin nature, to be a better person. That definition or that distinction does not exist in the Quran, does not exist in the earliest and most authoritative Islamic sources in the Hadith and other things. That's a Sufi or a mystical definition that came around the 11th century uh, and was introduced into Islamic sources at that time. Um, So... Jihad is classically, uh, again, this uh, this, uh, intent to extend the boundaries of the house of Islam, Dar al Islam, to uh, non Muslim peoples. And so, um, now, do all Muslims believe in the use of violence? I would say the vast majority are not violent people. I've experienced that living in the Middle East. The vast majority of Muslims are not violent people. so what do you do with the ideology? The ideology is there and has to be combated. You'd be amazed. I've been monitoring the Arab press and discussions over issues like jihad today uh, over these past several weeks with the crisis in uh, uh, Iraq, with ISIS and all this. And they themselves are asking these really hard questions. And, and many, many people are repudiating the violence and saying, hey, listen, this is not legitimate. This is not legitimate. Um, Whether there's an Islamic basis for it or not, they're arguing on on the basis of human rights that it's wrong. And so uh, there are a diversity of voices out there in the Muslim world. It's not just uh, everybody's a jihadist and, and that's what we face. That's just not the case. Yeah, so Arab Spring, uh, and then over to Syria. So the Arab Spring starts uh, in, uh, what was it, 2010, uh, I believe, in Tunisia, and uh, then spreads to Egypt. We see all the, um, the demonstrations in Egypt. The roots of the Arab Spring, okay, were a call for freedoms, for, we could say democracy, but but freedoms that we as Americans would defend, that we would as Americans would understand—individual uh, rights, of freedom of expression, freedom of religion—in some cases, that—that that was the roots of it. That was they. Many of these uh, people were living under oppressive, secularist regimes, and they wanted uh, to see freedom. They wanted to see economic development. Well, very quickly. In Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood, who are very well organized, kind of hijacked that particular expression of the Arab Spring. We saw them come to power. We, we eventually saw the Egyptian people rise up, which is a very encouraging sign, by the way, rise up against the Muslim Brotherhood and call for their ouster. And that's what we saw in, this, in 2013, and now Sisi is, is the leader in Egypt. In Syria, there was an Arab Spring calling for more freedom, but it very quickly turned into a sectarian conflict. It's not what you have in Egypt. It's not what you have in Libya. It's not what you have in Tunisia. It is specific to Syria. Syria has been dominated for 30, 40 years, I guess, um, by a small religious sect called the Alawites. Okay, They are, again, there's some in Israel, one village in Israel that has Alawites. They're a spinoff of Shiite Islam. They are, so they're Shiites. You can just call them Shiites to keep it simple. And the majority, though, are Sunnis. And so it's a Sunni Shiite conflict, what is going on. Bashar al Assad is an Alawite. He's the one that's in power. Um, he is generally, you could call him a, a, des, a despot, <laughs> he's a dictator, um, but he's a secularist. He treated the Christians, 10% of Syrians are Christian. And he treated them very well. So did Saddam Hussein, by the way. Saddam Hussein treated the Christians very well because they were secularists. Unfortunately, we've overturned regimes in the Middle East that tend to treat Christians, that used to treat Christians very well, even though they were dictators and sinful men and probably needed to go. But nonetheless, they treated the Christian, the indigenous Christians, uh, quite well. So the conflict in Syria is a sectarian conflict, a Shiite-Sunni conflict. And what's very interesting is now, something that I thought might happen about three years ago when it broke out, is that the West, is, it, 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 they were initially going to support rebel elements in Syria against the Syrian regime, the Alawite Shiite regime. Um, but those elements have, have really been overrun by these jihadist groups like ISIS. And so it's become an ISIS-Assad uh, conflict. And really, Assad is the good guy in that conflict, believe it or not, uh, strangely enough. He is the good guy. He is not uh, cutting off people's heads and putting them on stakes. He's a, he's a dictator. He did use chemical weapons against his own people. He's a bad guy. Um, but uh, when it comes to ISIS, he's the lesser of two evils, in my opinion. Yeah. Good questions. Other uh, questions or comments about any of this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that relates to... I talked about the Ottomans. I talked about this change in their laws in the 1830s. That gave Christians and Jews equal status in the eyes of Muslims. Muslims, okay, um, in their pol- politics, and their view of, of a hierarchy of privilege in society, Muslims are on the top. So long as Jews and Christians pay this penalty tax called the jizya, and submit to Muslim authority, they're tolerated. They don't have the same rights as Muslims in these in these classical, kind of classic uh, Muslim regimes like the Ottomans and, and others uh, in Islamic history. So, so Christians have to be subjugated. They have to mind their place in society. So long as they do that, they were tolerated. If we call that tolerance, and that's debated, obviously. So I wouldn't describe it as good relations. I would just describe it as not uh, ongoing violence against Christians and Jews. It's clearly not what we would say is democracy or equal rights, which we would affirm for all people regardless of their religious uh, views. Um, so when those changes happened, what what the fundamentalists are trying to do is implement and go back to those systems of government that would subjugate non Muslim peoples to Muslim authority and rule. That's what they want to see happen in, in those areas, in Iraq, and this Islamic state. and They want to return to that classical kind of view that puts Muslims at the top of the hierarchy. I guess my second question kind of the same day, is how we see attacks by Muslim extremists in other countries like 9 Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the violence that we see shipped out and exported to other places places, uh, from from Muslim violence, uh, jihadist or Islamist violence. It's very important to understand what we call Islamism. Okay, is a Muslim ideology, an Islamic ideology. Not all Muslims hold to it, but there's a sizable minority out there that does that wants to see the conflation of religion and state, see this barrier between uh, religion and state broken down, and then see Sharia law, Islamic law, implemented in all of society. That's generally speaking a definition of an Islamist. There are violent Islamists that we call jihadists, and there are non-violent Islamists, okay? That's a distinction. Their ideology is the same on the issue of politics, It's the tactics that are used to achieve those ends where there's difference, okay? So the jihadists legitimate, they say violence is legitimate. You can use violence to achieve those political ends. The non-violent Islamists are saying, no, we need to use it gradually. We need to have a gradual, we we need to build mosques and build Islamic centers and educate people about Islam. Talk about Muhammad as this wonderful exemplar. And the solution that Islam is the solution for all the moral problems in the West. That's a an Islam nonviolent Islamist strategy. Um, violence is a tactic, it's not the goal. It's very important to understand. It's simply a tactic in the achievement of a political agenda. Okay? And so we tend to focus on the violence. But this underlying ideology is actually the same even for those who are nonviolent. And so there are litmus tests, this litmus test, uh, the litmus test of, of political ideology of religion and state, Sharia law. Those are things that we can ask people when they are wanting to dialogue about Islam. Do they hold to those views? If they do, then they're an Islamist and they simply disagree with their other Islamist brethren on the use of violence as a tactic to achieve, ultimately, the destruction of democracies and the formation of Islamic states in their place. Other questions or comments? So, even though Islamists destined- Advocate violence? Yes. That's exactly right. And not just us as Christians, definitely, obviously, us as Christians, but to democracy, to freedom. that It is a threat. Islamism is a threat to a democracy. But they are still, I would say, a minority. Not all Muslims agree with this ideology. Okay, Keep that in mind as well. Uh, the majority don't, uh, I would say. Uh, the ones that, that I've met and experienced and, and, and been involved with, like, for 20 years, the majority don't. Some do, definitely, yes. You say that the majority What's the reasoning for that? I just think they've been influenced by, um, number one, Christian missions over the past 500 plus years uh, in these societies. And if you look at the history of Christian missions and how the gospel has spread around the world, you see reforming movements break out. You see the challenge of widow burning in India. You see uh, the challenge of not educating girls in the Middle East. You see the challenge. All these are challenges. We call these democracy and freedom and human rights. They all stem from really historically the spread of the gospel around the globe. They're gospel values at heart. And so uh, those that don't uh, agree with Islamism as an ideology, I would say, have been influenced. Now, they're not necessarily Christians, but they've been influenced by biblical values um, through various channels, whether they know that or identify that or trace it back to those biblical values or not. uh, Most of them probably don't, but that historically, you look at it, that's, I think that's a, uh, a good case can be made that that is the reason.